This morning, I want to invite you to go with me to 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter 1 will be our text today. We're going to take a break this morning from our Power Pack Postcard series. We've been studying through the four smallest books of the New Testament. We've covered Philemon, 2 John, and today would have wrapped up 3 John. But we'll come to that next week and finish off 3 John and move into the book of Jude in the weeks ahead. So we all are pretty familiar with um, some of the history lessons that are told and taught to us uh, through the years. Uh, D-Day is the day that will be remembered for a very long time from June 6, 1944. It was the Allied forces of World War II that they crossed the English Channel to invade the beaches of Normandy. This was the largest seaborne invasion in history, and the operation began uh, the liberation of the German-occupied northwestern Europe that was in the Nazi control. And so this contributed to the Allied victory on the Western Front. Now, in the days that followed D-Day, the Allied forces would see great victory. And of course, those that were a part of it, I was thinking of Mr. Gibson, you were in World War II, and uh, if you sit and talk about the story, he was a part of... uh, a ship that had been attacked and sunk, and uh, I'm sorry, Korea War, the Korea War. Oh, T- Tippy, I'm sorry. Thank you, Mr. Gibson. Where's Tippy? Tippy was the World War II story that your ship sunk, and uh, I'm sorry. I had you free on the land. I had Gibson sitting in the water, <laughs> so you're the man in the water, and uh, and I've heard his story before and remembered it in every detail, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> But sit with him sometime and listen to the stories of uh, World War II. But the cost of freedom would be a high price to pay. And we know that over 83,000 lives from our allied forces were killed in the invasion of Normandy. And for the United States alone, over 125,000 lives were taken on the beaches that day. So the memory of D-Day and the final victory of World War II will, will never be forgotten The Omaha Beach and the pictures and the stories was uh, something that is ingrained in all of our memories. It covers over 172 acres, this memorial that has been made with the graves. It contains the remains of 9,387 American military men and women, most of which were killed during the invasion of Normandy and other military operations in World War II. So if we were to travel to that place, let's look at that place again. If we were to travel to that site today and place our feet in the plush green grass and look over this U.S. cemetery on foreign ground, we could definitely say that the the price of freedom is seen here. We know the stories and we know how it unfolded and we know the sacrifice that was made. And, And on this Freedom Sunday... We certainly take the time to remember that and certainly don't want to take any of the freedoms we have lightly or for granted in a passing statement or passing remarks. But the greatest generation of World War II, of those heroes who paid the ultimate price for our enjoyment, for our freedoms, brings to light an even greater picture today of what freedom truly is. Because we recognize and celebrate this picture of freedom that can only be found in Jesus Christ. That is a freedom that if we were to put it into pictures, you would see a picture of the cross. And that's where I want to go today with our text in 1 Peter chapter 1. Would you join me in verse number 18? I'm going to read four verses here. You've got the notes there in your bulletin if you'd like them. Or you can go straight online to parkwaybaptist.org. 
click on the link and you've got the notes there digitally that you can edit and add to throughout the service. Email them to yourself and you'll have them for your records. Verse number 18, 1 Peter chapter 1, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundations of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. This morning we look at this text and we see the price of freedom is seen here. Let's pray. Ask God to give us guidance through this message. Father, we so desperately want to see the content from your text today that is relevant and applicable to us. I join in unison with the voices today that say that they too have found a freedom in Christ and we, we celebrate that together and I'm thankful for that. But Lord, this morning, may, we, may this passage come to us in such a way that gives us the urgency of the message, the revelation that has been given that we must tell others. Father, if there's somebody here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ in a very personal way, a personal relationship that they have salvation and that redemption through Jesus with an assurance of heaven one day, if they don't have that assurance, would you bring them to that place today of great conviction and their desperate need of Jesus Christ? And so we give this time over to you and beg for your guidance and blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the book of First Peter, in the book of First Peter, uh, we find that uh, this was written to the Christians that were spread throughout the regions within the Roman Empire that is modern-day Turkey. We find that is addressed in chapter 1, verse number 1. The order in which we read verse number one, you will find that these are the cities that potentially Silas, or as we would see in chapter five, verse two, or 12, Sylvanus, that Silas delivered this message directly written by the hands of Peter. Now, it may be that as this gospel was taken through to these regions, we are not sure exactly how these churches had been started or founded. Potentially, these are churches that Paul had traveled from time to time and planted with some of his converts that could be found in some of these churches. Potentially, it was the churches that had been planted by those who were new converts on the day of Pentecost, coming out and began to spread during the persecution and began to spread the gospel to other regions. Peter himself may have ministered in some of these regions, although we don't really have any biblical uh, clear direction on that in the scriptures laid out that he went to these places. But for some reason, Peter had relationship or communication with these cities, with the churches that were in these cities. And just as we've been studying in our postcards, we know that these churches would have been uh, house churches, first century churches. And so they're going from house to house, delivering this message from First Peter. And these congregations mainly consisted of Gentiles, although there would have been some Jews that would have been mixed in within the congregations. And that's why this letter is written in the way it has been from Peter. Now, Peter gives us some insight in chapter 5, verse number 12, as to why he wrote this letter. He says, by Silvanus, so Silas is going to deliver this letter that I've written. He's a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting 
and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. So Peter wants his readers to stand firm in the truth that we just sang about, the truth of who God is and the, and the gospel message. He wants the Christians to stand truth in the midst of persecution. Persecution is really picking up and Christians are finding themselves in a moment of suffering and they're having to decide whether they're going to stand tall and true for what they've learned and what they believe, that which has been transformational in their life. Am I going to stand firm on this or am I going to, to melt uh, to the persecution and shy away because of the suffering? So Peter writes this first letter of the book of 1 Peter and he's going to give some great content right away at the very beginning. He starts with a normal greeting, verse one, two, and, th- and, and verses one and two, and then in, ch- in verse number three, he gets right to the content, and he's going to build into this letter why he is writing. He gives this this hope and assurance for the future in chapter one, verse three and four. He's going to mention about the trials of the present, saying that these are are real things that are happening. We don't take them lightly. You are suffering, and you are going through things. But there's this. There's going to accumulate some message that says, yes, you have rejoicing from the past, and in the present you have suffering, but the thing to look toward the future is this, a continual process, a continual progress of growth to be more like Jesus Christ, what we see as sanctification, and he kind of of comes to this, this peak or this head with verses 13 through verse 16, and he talks about the, the mandate to be holy. And he says, church, Christians, the the gospel has transformed your life and you are not the old man you once were. You have hope and assurance through Christ right now. But in the midst of your sufferings, don't look at the present day, look to the future and continue to keep your eyes on Jesus and press toward that goal so that you will be more like Jesus. So he says in verse number 13, wherefore gird up your loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust of your ignorance. He says, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner, in all ways, in every iota of your lifestyle that you live, strive to be holy. And then he comes to our text here and we see the heart of this issue because the heart of this issue comes. Why are we striving to be holy? Because 18 through 21 is going to give us that great foundation. He says it's all because of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, then I have freedom to just melt with the crowd or to bend to the crowd or to be formed to the crowd. So if I have this freedom in Christ, then I will just shot, I will try to find a, an escape from this persecution and I will just blend in. Isn't that what Christians tend to lean toward today? I don't want to be an offense to anybody, so I will shy away from standing for truth or boldly proclaiming the gospel. So I will try to blend in the world. I'll even take on the forms of the world and I will do the methods of the world and I will live like the world so that I can avoid wrath and persecution in my workplace or in my neighborhood or in other personal relations that, that, that I have. So Peter is giving this encouragement that says this freedom that we have in Jesus Christ is one that is going to propel us forward to stand strong in the midst of this persecution. So the price of freedom is seen here, verse 18 through 20, we see the source of our freedom. And the key word in this passage 
is the word redeemed. In verse number 18, he says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things. Well, if I wasn't redeemed with corruptible things, if I wasn't redeemed with the vain uh, conversations or the vain lifestyle or repetitions of my forefathers, what have I been redeemed to or from? Now, the word redeemed, we know it means to purchase a release by paying a ransom. So it is to deliver by payment of a price. The Greeks, who would have been reading this, remember, not the Jews, was a, a big um, congregation in these churches were a lot of Gentiles. And they would have known a technical term for redeem was paying a set amount of money to buy back a prisoner of war. And so for Peter to use this word redeemed would have, would have rung a bell in the minds of the readers in the churches as they're reading this. And as they're thinking, yeah, we have been a prisoner of war that have been bought by the price of Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he believed that redemption is God's greatest work. And he said this, quote, great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to make us. In the one, there was but the speaking of a word, in the other, the shedding of blood. Peter is sure to point out that the source of our freedom, our redemption, our salvation did not come from moment monetary corruptible things. He says right in the verse, he says, we weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, though they would have been very precious elements. They show us this form of the wrong investments, the wrong intentions. It shows us the wrong perspectives. And says, we weren't redeemed by being bought back with monetary items like silver and gold. He says, that's not where our redemption come. Our redemption didn't even come by this useless way of living. He says in the text that this from our vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers or these empty traditions or empty ways of living that have been passed down from our fathers. This verse helps us to see that many people, though today they will try in every effort to earn and to work their way toward that redemption. Some will say that it is not even secure salvation. So they hope that they will continue to make good decision after good decision to keep that salvation secure. But we know through clear teaching of the scriptures that that, that gift of salvation is given by grace through faith plus nothing else. And that is eternal security. It is eternal salvation. So he reminds his readers here that this salvation did not come from some, some monetary investment of gold and silver or what can I trade or what are the items that I, can, that I can give in order to receive it. And it did not come from these vain repetitions or these empty ways of living that were just traditions passed down through time. Both of those things point to this old covenant and we're going to talk about that in just a moment as we look at Hebrews 10. But before we get that, I want you to see how the unredeemed shape their way of thinking. Remember we read back in verse number 14, it says that they shape their way of living by lust. He says, as obedient children, not now anymore shaping up or fashioning yourselves according to the former Lust, that word lust there would be directing us towards these driving passions for that which is not rightfully ours. Those things which are distracting, those things which captivate our desires for evil. 
And he says the unredeemed try to shape their way of living based on that. And he says also they, they find themselves looking for eternal happiness or eternal life and, and they are in bondage to ignorance, verse number 14. And this is on their own, they cannot under, understand the things of God. And on their own, they do not desire the things of God. Have you ever met an unrighteous and unredeemed individual? They have no desire for the things of God. They will go through repetitious things thinking that that will get them some type of approval in God's system. But they have no desire to speak of God's grace. They have no desire to fellowship with the believers. They have no desire to bear good fruit out of their life that represents the Holy Spirit's work. An unredeemed individual has no desire for the things of God. So don't be shocked when you watch the news. Don't be shocked when you read the paper. Don't be shocked when you see your neighbors who are all unredeemed living corrupt and evil lives. It doesn't need to surprise us. They have been blinded, Ephesians 4, 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. That's why we desperately pray for the unredeemed to have their eyes opened, the blind to see, the lame to walk, and that their life can be transformed by the power of the gospel. And it doesn't take our prayers out of the equation. We certainly will bombard heaven with our prayers, that God, you would draw them to yourself, that you would remove the blinders on their eyes, and the devil could have no more grip, that they may see the truth and love of Jesus Christ. And so we see here this unredeemed is also living a useless, vain, worthless way of living that finds hope in just religious traditions. Now remember the Pharisees did that. Many others do that today. And only God can free the souls that are caught in this unredeemed condition. Our heart breaks when we speak the truth and we plant gospel seeds and a heart is not receptive and receiving. And it crushes us but we have to remind ourselves that we're the messenger and the Holy Spirit is the worker. The Holy Spirit does the convicting and the saving. And some of you that are good salesmen can talk anybody into trusting Christ as their Savior. And you're the best with the rest of them. But unless there is a true transformation in their heart, it is just vain, repetitious words that mean nothing. They're without hope and they have no assurance. So Peter makes it clear that the source of our freedom what it does not come from. And then in verse number 19, he shares that the source is the precious blood of Christ. The source is not your monetary values of gold and silver. It is not your vain, empty, useless ways of living that you hope will outweigh the good and the bad in the end. It is nothing of that. Our freedom, our redemption comes through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This blood belonged to the spotless Lamb of God. What an amazing picture here. The intense sacrifice that an owner had to do in the Old Testament was to take an unblemished, spotless lamb or a spotless animal that they would then take to use as their sacrifice yearly to pay for their sins. And the Old Covenant qualified or, or commanded them to do this, that they would give the spotless lamb of God and that they would make this sacrifice and this sacrifice in the blood would be used to cover their sins as the Old Covenant clearly laid it out. Now, now we must be careful 
that we don't get into a habit of always looking at the old covenant with negative eyes or negative vision. For there was purpose and reason as God laid this plan out. For it was the Old Testament saints which would perform these these sacrifices which helped direct them toward the cross where the ultimate Lamb of God, the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God, would be the once and for all sacrifice. So that the old covenant of continual sacrifice after sacrifice could be rid and done with. Hebrews chapter 10, let's skip over a few pages and see what the writer of Hebrews has told us about these sacrifices. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 1, you're turning, I'm reading, listen closely, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. It just couldn't. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, wouldn't the once for all sacrifice, this was my best lamb. I've been holding it for years. It's spotless without blemish. It's my sacrifice. One and done. I should be done. But the old covenant said no, yearly, year after year. If it had been that way, they would have ceased to be offered. Verse 2, because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. They would not have been aware They didn't have the gift of the Holy Spirit convicting them. How many of you are thankful for the Holy Spirit? Raise your hand. How many of you wish he'd quit convicting you of sin? Would you put your hand down? All right. So the gift of the Holy Spirit says that he's going to continue to convict us, prompt us, steer us, guide us, love us, endow us. He's he's there for us. But they did not have that. If they had given their one sacrifice, they'd be one and done, and they would not be aware, convicted, or have any reason for them to do anything with their sin. So verse number three, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. I'm thankful that December 31st does not come around and we all have to rehash our 2018 of how bad it was. Because some of you would have a pretty thick notebook to have to discuss on that day. I wouldn't. Mine's real thin. Three by five card, okay? I just had to add one to it, okay? I'm proud. Verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away any sins. Verse number 9, then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second, removing the first, uh, the old covenant to establish the new covenant by the which will we are uh, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, once for all. Sir or ma'am, you need some assurance of your eternal security? I'll take you to John 10 and talk about no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand, but I'll bring you to Hebrews chapter 10 and see that it has been paid once for all. The blood of Jesus Christ brings redemption to all mankind. Whether they will accept and receive that free gift is the opportunity they have by their will. And the sacrifice on the cross that Jesus Christ paid on our behalf, puts aside this old covenant and the old covenant practices and it secures us forgiveness and sanctification. And today, we are living in that. You are living in the security of forgiveness for sins in the past, present, and future. Is God going to forgive me of my sins tomorrow? It's already been dealt with once for all. But now is the process of sanctification. It's looking tomorrow different than today. It's looking next week 
more spiritual and healthy spiritually than you did last month. It is this process of growing to be more like your Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, 15, be holy for I am holy. So that is our process here. Now, Warren Wearsby puts it this way. He says, the doctrine of sacrifice begins in Genesis 3, when God killed animals that he might clothe Adam and Eve. Remember the story. A ram died for Isaac, and the Passover lamb was slain for each Jewish Jewish household. The Messiah was presented as an innocent lamb in Isaiah 53. Isaac asked the question, where is the lamb? And John the Baptist answered when he pointed out and saw Jesus and said, Behold the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. In heaven, the redeemed and the angels will sing, Worthy is the lamb. We sang that today. As I was singing with the group, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb. I began to wonder how many of you were sitting out there thinking, Oh, this is real repetitious. Oh, this is saying it again? Maybe it was. But I have this whole thought that maybe worthy is the lamb, Revelation 4 you quoted, might be something that is repeated over and over and over again when we gather around the throne of God and we see the very sacrifice that paid the price on the cross for us. And we can't help but say, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Verse number 19 points to this very precious blood of Christ as it refers to the whole of the redeeming of grace, uh, excuse me, the redeeming of death. The Bible speaks of Christ's blood often. It speaks of it three times as often as it mentions the cross. Isn't that interesting? If we want to put an emphasis in the church, it might be removing a cross and just putting a big splatter of blood. I don't think that's really the way we want to go. But the blood was mentioned three times more than the cross, five times more than the death of Jesus Christ. So there's an emphasis here, not in blood period, but in the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood is this main term used in the New Testament to return, re- refer to atonement. And Christ, if he had not literally shed his blood... We know that we would not have the forgiveness for our sins. Hebrews chapter 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, payment. There is, no, there is no substitute and remission for our sins. And so this crucifixion was the most vivid and visible display of being poured out to pay the price for our sin. Some may say, why wasn't he just beaten to death? Why wasn't there just some other way, maybe just shot to death with bows, bow and arrows? Why wasn't there some other method or way? Why was it the crucifixion? Because the crucifixion was the most vivid and gruesome picture of death, and it poured out the blood, the literal blood that shows the whole atonement that is offered to cover our sins. So what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is power, power, power in the blood. And so we know the emphasis of the blood. We know that there's an importance of that blood, the literal blood that was violently shed, which it shows this atonement for our sins. So, sir or ma'am, don't corrupt the gospel by trying to add your works, your commitments, your knowledge, your traditions, don't add baptism, don't add anything to the process of redemption. It is laid out clearly in the scriptures that it is by Christ alone. In Christ alone, our hope is found. And we find that here in this text. Verse number 20, he says, "...who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world." 
Now this makes it clear that Christ's death on the cross was an appointment, not an accident. Do you understand? It was an appointment that God foreordained. It was not an accident or plan B. Our God does not work off of plan B's. And so some may try to say that it was a murder of Jesus, but from the divine perspective, he laid down his life as a ransom. He gave it. Remember that John 3.16 gives us that picture that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so often that's where we then begin to talk about a gift and illustrations will be used about the, the Christmas gifts or a birthday gift or a gift that is not earned, it is just received. And that is simply the text here that is saying that God gave his son Jesus to be the spotless lamb of God to take away our sins. God did not react with different ways. It just tells us that God had predetermined this as he foreordained before the foundation of the world. Now, Peter goes from writing about the source of freedom, and now he's going to talk about this purpose of freedom. In verse 20 and 21, the last statement of verse number 21 gives us the concluding thought. He says that your faith and hope might be in God. Now, when you meet different people, what are you finding that their hope and faith is in? When you have just real conversations with people and you begin to break down barriers, build relationships, and plant gospel seeds, what is just the raw, authentic truth that you're finding in those conversations? How are they basing their eternal life? Where is their security for life after life here? And in some of those conversations, you're finding that people often are banking on the fact that, they, that they've always been saved. Many of you have heard that statement before. Oh, I've always been saved. Oh, really? I've always been in church. Mom and dad had me in church by the time I was five years old, or I was born in the nursery, you know, those kind of things. Or, you know, dad was a deacon, and, and mom was the Sunday school teacher. And, and the list goes on and on, and they've just always been saved. Or somebody may even say this. You know, one day there was just, I just had this feeling. And it was like, yeah, you know, I, I like this God stuff. Or, or I can really kind of get used to this adding just religion into my, my, my mixture of things that I do in life. So I've got, you know, baseball that I play, and then I've got church that I go to, and, and then I've got my job that I, that I work. And so some people just say it just kind of happened with this feeling. Some people really bank, are really truly banking on some good things. I told you about a friend of mine that I'm really working through to break down barriers, build relationship, plant gospel seeds. And he just simply said he's a good husband. He's a good dad. He's always been very good. And he comes from a, a, a Catholic background which has taught him that good works are giving him eternal life. And so when we find these conversations, we see that the reminder comes from the source of our redemption is that through the blood of Jesus Christ, why? So that our faith and hope might be in God, not in ourselves, uh, not in our past, not in our history, not in our hopes, but in God alone. I want to share an anthem of freedom to you, kind of a freedom day today. It's kind of got a freedom focus. It's a modern hymn that celebrates our freedom in Christ. You know the hymn. We've sung it many times for the last several years. It's Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend's song, In Christ Alone. I want to walk through the verses and see how it, it connects to our text. Here's the freedom, the anthem of freedom. He says, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. 
this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Now watch what happens in verse 20 and 21. Because in this passage of scripture, he's going to travel with us in verse 20. He says, but was manifest or revealed in these last times for you. This word last times is a familiar expression of the time period between the birth of Christ and his second coming. And so this last times, not the end times, but the last times from his birth to his second coming after the tribulation. And this manifestation includes, as he's being revealed to us, his incarnation in life, verse number 20. He says that he was uh, verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world and revealed, manifest in these last times for you. And then in his death, verse number 21, he says, Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead? So this manifestation includes his incarnation in life, God coming in man form, living here on earth, his death as a crucifixion on the cross. Let me read verse 2 of the anthem. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love, love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him. Every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Verse 21 continues, not ending with his death, but says that raised him up from that death. In that third verse of the anthem, it says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world in darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands, let me start over. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Does that not give you goosebumps? I can't say that verse again. His glory is seen in verse 21, the death, the burial, the resurrection. And it says, and gave him glory. And this God giving him glory points to his ascension as he brought him into the presence of God the Father. You want to have a real conversation with somebody about the gospel, you just simply walk them through what Jesus did for you. You tell them about the transformation that has happened in your life. You talk about how God is real to you. And then you tell them about how Jesus died for you. And Jesus was buried for you. But that he came alive, victorious. So that I am his and he is mine. And today I can stand in victory in Christ alone. And you tell them the story about the gospel. And you will see God use that very simple conversation to begin to work in somebody's heart and mind. But it does not happen by accident. The purpose of redemption 
was that we must be finding our hope and faith in God alone, but we don't hoard it or hold it for ourselves. So what are you going to do with it? Well, this faith is to trust in the sovereignty of God and His grace in the middle of life's rough circumstances and the worries that we have. Can we take a survey? How many of you are in rough circumstances of life? Would you raise your hand? All right, three of you are willing to admit it. The rest of you are like, my life's a mess, but I don't want anybody to know. Life is rough, and circumstances come in every direction. And where do you find your faith? Your faith is found in the trust of sovereignty, a sovereign God. That says, God, you're in control. My life's a mess, but I'm going to trust you to steer me through. Now, sometimes we go through consequences because of our poor decisions. We understand that. But we can always fall back on the promises that God will never leave us nor forsake us. He issues his forgiveness and he enables us to move forward. Verse number four of that anthem I end, it says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. You know, the war is over, folks. Oh yeah, D-Day, 60, 70 years ago. Yeah, the war, World War II is over. But you know what? Your war is over. Quit trying to fight it on your own. The reality is, is that it's a finished work and the bondage to sin and death is done. Remember that God has already judged our sins in Jesus Christ. And so consider the cost of your redemption. And today, meditate on the truth of the gospel. And when you do, you cannot help but be motivated to live out holiness. Understand that today? We can all shout and and, and be excited about the thought that our redemption is through the blood of Jesus Christ. But remember, verse 18 and 21 is the very foundation which supports why we should be pursuing holiness in all manner of conversation, in every way of life we live. That's the passage. And so here, look to the cross, look to the lamb without blemish who shed his precious blood to rescue you by dying in your place. The truth is, is that the the price of freedom is seen here. It's the cross, the precious blood, and the true freedom that is found only in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone. What a phenomenal truth. Would you keep your eyes open to the view of where true freedom is found. Father, we, I hope that I've communicated clearly the message that you wanted for us to have today. And so now as we come to a time of not being just hearers of the word, but putting it into application, may we set our sights and mind to be doers of the word. I don't know what that looks like from person to person. It is not my responsibility to convict hearts. I've clearly communicated or at least done my best to clearly communicate the text that you've given us, praying and begging and asking the Holy Spirit to do his work. And so now in these moments together, we will pray, we will search, and we will celebrate Father, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, 
Draw them to yourself. Bring conviction in their heart. And may we have the privilege to share Jesus with them. May they not walk out of here without an assurance of a personal relationship with you today. Thank you for what you're going to do in these moments ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.